We are in John chapter 5, verses 39 through 47. It's uh, in the bulletin there, the text we're in. And we're continuing our series, The Red Letters of John. And this whole chapter, it's all, it's mostly read as Jesus is uh, talking to the religious establishment, the religious leaders of the day. They are basically informally trying him at this point because he healed a man on the Sabbath, and it technically broke the, the Jewish or the religious law. And so they, they could care less that this man was miraculously healed, and instead they're, they want to kill Jesus, they say, and they're persecuting Jesus. So Jesus here is still giving his defense. And this is part two of a sermon called Witness. Last Sunday, if you were here, we looked at three witnesses that Jesus called upon to testify of who he is as the Christ or the Messiah. You may remember John the Baptist was the first witness he called upon. And then the works of Christ, these miraculous healings, he called upon to testify for who he is. And then the Father was the third witness. Well, today, the witness is the Bible. This is a sermon we're going to look at where we look at the Bible uh, through through the eyes of, of Christ. So, John chapter five, beginning in verse thirty nine. You examine the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that bear witness of me. And you are unwilling to come to me so that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know you, that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another, and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have put your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, these are some, what may sound like some outlandish statements you clearly are saying we actually don't find life in the Bible. You're saying that the Bible, that even Moses in the Old Testament was writing about you. Help us to understand this. Help us to at least hear it and process this together. I pray with, ultimately with the goal in mind of experiencing healing and transformation. Even now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you heard it there. Jesus said, and in the scriptures was the Old Testament, the Bible. He says, he tells these religious leaders, you search the Bible because you think in it you find life. Of course, he's implying that they don't. So say what? You don't find life in the Bible. Interesting. And then he says, and this is, again, an outlandish thing to say, it seems, Moses, who, who is attributed to being the, the author of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, but specifically, he's talking about the Ten Commandments here, I believe. And he's saying the Ten Commandments that Moses wrote, especially the, sec- the second time around, the first 
uh, stones Moses shattered. And so then he meets with God at Mount Sinai, and a new covenant is, is basically the old covenant is ratified. And Jesus is saying the Ten Commandments, when Moses wrote, he wrote about Jesus. You may have grown up in church, and still that should and probably will sound strange to you. So these are some mystical, yes, outlandish statements Jesus is making that I want to explore together to try to understand what, what he means. And, and to understand, first of all, Moses is brought out onto stage. Now, last Sunday I said Moses was kind of uh, in the background, and here he comes to the foreground. He's up front and center where Jesus references, particularly this story in Exodus 34, which is the story, this is, I think, what's in Jesus' mind here, and certainly scholars believe this as, um, as well, that when Jesus, after shattering the first commandments, the, the, the first two tables of the law, because God's people were stiff-necked, it said, stubborn. Uh, so Moses goes to meet with God. And what ends up happening at this meeting on Mount Sinai is an, an, the covenant or the promise is retold again. Exodus 34, verses 27 and 28, this is what God tells Moses in that meeting. The Lord said to Moses, write these words, for in accordance with these words, I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. Again, covenant means promise. He was there with the Lord for 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And this was the time, you may know the story, when Moses pleads with God to experience God, to really experience God. That's a good thing to pray. And this is when God says, okay, and puts Moses in the cleft of the rock. And Moses, or God, um, God's backside comes before Moses. Now, God is a spirit, doesn't have a body. This is metaphorical language, but this is a mystical encounter experience with God that was very real, that Moses has to be hid in the cleft of this rock, or this presence of God would consume him. And so you may, you may know that story. This is, this is that meeting at Mount Sinai. And so then God says this, uh, or, or the text says this, and Moses wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments, or what Jews would have also referred to as the Ten Words. Okay, I think when Jesus says in John five forty six that Moses wrote about me or wrote of me, he's talking about that scene. He's saying that when Moses wrote the Ten Commandments, he was writing about Jesus. And then Jesus will talk about this, and we, we can put the other gospel passages together, and I think put together what he means here. You see, Jesus, this is, this is the way to think of Jesus. Jesus shows up as the law made flesh. The one who, good news, keeps all those commandments for you and for me. G tells Moses, or when he tells these religious leaders that Moses was writing about him, that's what he means. Actually, Jesus is the one who in the flesh comes to fulfill that covenant promise. So better than the written word, we have the word made flesh, to which the written word only points to. And here we're starting to understand the role of the Bible the purpose of the Bible, how to use it, how to understand it. 
Now, this passage here uh, in John is one of the, it's, a, it's very plain spoken, what Jesus is saying. It's very clear, but it's one of those passages that maybe, we, I don't know, maybe we've overlooked. And we probably have overlooked because, as the Bible says, there's this veil still that remains over the hearts of people who won't see that the Bible is actually about Christ. And this is one of those passages, it's kind of a litmus test to see whether or not we still have a veil. It's very clear what Jesus is saying. Now, now Paul says in 1 Corinthians, this is a reference to maybe why we, and myself included, didn't once understand this passage in John 5. 1 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15. There's going to be lots of Bible in this sermon. Um, 1 Corinthians 3, 14 through 15 says, But their minds were made dull. For to this day, the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. Meaning the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, the Bible. So these religious leaders and those of us today who are misusing the Bible still have, are doing so because of this veil. Those who use the Bible as an instruction manual have completely missed the point. Those who use the Bible, particularly who weaponize the Bible and beat people up in judgment, are these people that have a veil covering their hearts so that they don't see a passage that is as plain spoken as John 5 that we're in here? Paul continues, even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. Okay, Jesus says, once again, very clearly in this passage, that the point of the scriptures it's not an, they are not an end of themselves. They are meant to witness the law or the promise made flesh. The scriptures are a means to an end. So here's the main teaching. Here's what all that means. We don't need the Bible to be perfect. <laughs> Good news, y'all. The pressure is off. You don't have to protect it anymore. In fact, you don't need it to be perfect. It's not Here's why. Because the Bible is simply a witness to the one who is perfect. And here's how we understand how to use the Bible, how to understand the Bible. We don't need the Bible to be perfect because the Bible is simply a witness to the one who is perfect. The one made flesh embodied. Yes, the, the written word is always going to be limiting and limited. So Jesus shows up in the flesh much better than the scriptures. Are, are we, who are we worshiping though? A lot, a lot of Christians I think are worshiping a book and they're missing the whole point. Just like Morris last Sunday, you know, there's the steak, Morris. It's, it's over there. It's a delicious ribeye. It's, it's, it's right there. This is what you need. And Morris is just focused on my finger rather than looking at the steak it's pointing to. This is how people use the Bible. Christians today use the Bible. They're, they're worshiping a book. They're focusing on what in the end is just a witness, witnessing, and they're missing out on what the book is witnessing, the one that came to give life. Jesus says, you search the Bible because you think in it you find life. You don't. You find life in me. This, this could be different teaching for some of us, could be strange-sounding, I'm telling you, friends, this will set you free. It, it will actually cause the Bible to become alive. 
Here's the problem, though. Look at verse 44. You see, Jesus doesn't engage with these people like in an intellectual, kind of cerebral way. He, because the problem is not a cerebral one. The problem is not an intellectual one. The problem is an ego, an unhealthy ego that gets out of whack. The problem is pride. The problem is self-absorption. He says these, that's why these people don't believe in Christ. Look at verse 44. That's where he goes. How can you believe when you accept glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? Now, this is amazing. He's saying you're living for the praise of man, ego, and, and people use religion to prop themselves up. That's precisely, you know, a lot of people, in fact, unfortunately in America, maybe most people come to church wanting a pat on the back. Good job. You're, you're, you're keeping the law great. You're doing a good job. They're not really coming to change. They're not really coming to experience transformation and healing. They're coming to have their ego stroked. And when the ego is not stroked, they get offended. And oftentimes, you know, the, it, well, churches stay really small like that, <laughs> right? Um, people come because just like these folks, because they want their egos stroked. And I, I'm, I'm speaking generally here, okay? Please believe me. I'm speaking very generally here. This is what I do. This is what we all do if left to ourselves. And this is what these folks are doing. So Christ, Jesus says, they don't believe as a result. They don't see the stake being pointed out here that's being witnessed. And this is the thing that's mind-blowing, As a result, when we live according to ego and use religion and the Bible to prop ourselves up and and to prop up our understanding of it, to show the world we got it right, (laughs) we are unfortunately settling for a consolation prize. We might be settling. Yes, maybe we receive praise and respect from others, but there's something so much better than that. It's called the praise of God. It's the praise from above. Rather than what these folks are doing that Jesus is confronting, looking for praise down below, so to speak. Jesus is saying there's a praise from above that is so much better than that. There's a glory from the one and only God that you're missing out on that is yours in Christ Jesus that Jesus came to reveal. And yet they're still just focused on the finger. So this is, I think, what Christ is saying here. And once you no longer need, though, the Bible to prove your worth, this is what what I mean. Folks use religion and the Bible to prove that they are worthy. They've got it right. It's really their own self-righteous, self-salvation project that they're on. They're not following God. When you no longer do that and surrender (laughs) to your own powerlessness, Ah, man, the freedom comes. And what you realize at the end of the day is the Bible then starts to come alive. And it becomes a a book that you, yeah, you grapple with, that you feel free to wrestle with. And what you need to do is ultimately read the Bible, listening to, as um, Amanda pointed out, God. And where is God? Within. Remember, God is embodied, not in doesn't, isn't it contained in this book? Where do we find God? We find God within. So this is the last point. As the mystics say, deep calls unto deep. Yes, there's, 
if we are the temple of God, we should listen to the voice of God, the voice of the Holy Spirit who's within, who will also serve as a witness to what is true about the Bible, especially the love of God in Christ Jesus. Deep will call unto deep. Here's what I mean. So um, what's going on inside of us as the very temple of God is God is within, is witnessing the truth of the scriptures. The Bible, we don't need it to be perfect, but it we can trust it. We can rely on it as a reliable witness to the one who is perfect. Well, okay, Chad, how, how do we, how do we, are you just saying we can pick and choose parts of the Bible that we like? No, I'm not, I'm not saying that. I am saying we should listen though. There's, there's a, a litmus test for what is beautiful in the Bible. And, and there, there are two things. One is, you know, when Jesus said to uh, love your neighbor, to love God, love your neighbor as you love yourself. Well, here's how you know the voice within is of God, if it's doing that. That's sort of another, another trinity. Love for God, love for neighbor, love for self. If, if the voice within is motivated by love, you need to listen to it. God is love. That is, that is God. Um, another little litmus test is, okay, so we're, I'm saying Christ is who is being witnessed. So the, the Bible is just simply a flashlight, if you will, shining a light onto Christ. And as we see Christ authoritatively depicted in the scriptures, you can trust that, that witness you, because it's authenticated with what's going on in here, particularly the love of Christ. Now you use Christ to shine back onto the Bible so that you can rightly understand the Bible. This is what, um, so I'm, I'm a Presbyterian and I'm a Southerner. So, so my Southern forefathers, actually Presbyterian forefathers, actually used the Bible to argue for slavery. And you can do that. You can absolutely use, you can use the Bible to argue for really whatever you want. Okay, how, how do we know what's true and what's not? Well, here's what I mean when I say Christ now which is which in this in this um this this love of love for God love for people love for neighbor as you love yourself embodied in Christ m- must be shown back onto the text so that you don't get off course if you do that if my forefathers presbyterian southern forefathers had done that they would not have been able to argue for slavery do you see what i mean this is if we there has to be a north star that our compass is set to it is Christ so the Bible shines a light onto Christ, and you use Christ to shine a light back onto Scripture to understand and, and well, really to use Scripture properly. And you listen to the voice within who will self-authenticate what you need to follow in this text and, honestly, what you need to spit out. Like this whole, the whole, like, uh, slaves obey your masters part. That's a, that's, a, that's a good thing to spit out, Right? Uh, here's an illustration to try to picture this in our, in our mind's eye. Richard War, here's the, here's the Sunday Richard War moment. Here it comes. Uh, Richard War has this illustration of a bicycle. So think of a, of a two-wheeled bicycle, right? Not, not training wheels, but just two wheels. You've got a front wheel and a back wheel. Both are essential in order for the, the bike to go, right? You need both wheels. You don't just need the front or the back. You need them both. However, the front wheel is more important. It steers, it guides the back wheel. Now, 
here are the two wheels in Richard Rohr's uh, illustration. One is Scripture, and one is what, what we might call our experience, particularly our experience, our embodied experience of God. I'll put it this way, specifically our experience of the love of Christ, this unconditional, radical, accepting, and embracing love. That's another wheel. Which one's first? Which one goes in the front? Which one goes in the back? Well, what Roar says, and I, I used to, this is a point I used to disagree with him on. Years ago, I, I heard him talk about this, and, and he said, well, the front wheel is experience, and the back wheel is meant to be the scriptures. And I thought, I don't know, Richard, I, I, that's a little too woo-woo and liberal for me. Let, me. let me reverse that, and then it's a good illustration. Well, you know what? I think he's right. Uh, and you might call me woo-woo and liberal. That's fine. Um, I have gone off the deep end. It's true. Uh, it's a deep. It's much deeper. The, it's much deeper. I love it. <laughs> I think. Uh, that, that's, what I, that's what I think is happening. So I think Richard War is correct. Front wheel that steers us. It's the voice of God within. It is our experience of Christ. It's steering the bike, the, the bicycle. But you need the scriptures. They are essential. The Bible is vital. But it's the back wheel. Okay? I think that's how we're meant to use the Bible. It's how we're meant to understand it. And I, and I, I, I think this is crucial for us. I think, I think some of us are struggling with, with um, some things. This, if we get this, the dominoes begin to fall, I think. I think we will be on better footing if we get this. So the purpose of the Bible is to shine a light on Christ. And then in order to make sense of the Bible, Christ must shine back onto the text. Otherwise, we get off course, right? And we start to like have rules like women can't speak in church. And they have to wear hats, too. Where are your hats, ladies? Where, where are all your hats? Uh, um, are, and, and also, if I, I had shrimp last night. Uh, did you know the Bible says that's, that's illegal? You can't have shrimp, shellfish. Well, was I in sin? No, because this person called Jesus Christ shows up and once and for all sets the record straight. And it needed to be set straight. As Peter N. says, the Bible is, is what would happen if God chose fallible, very flawed, and broken human beings to write God's story. Well, the Old Testament especially is what you would find, what you would get, right? Coming from a certain context, a patriarchal one, a misogynistic one, right? Uh, coming from a certain worldly culture at the time. And so the language comes through that way, and we needed Christ to show up and say, hey, y'all, um, this is how Brian Zahn puts it, I am everything that God has to say to the world, embodied, not in a book, but in flesh, He comes to set the record straight. This is precisely what Hebrews 1 says. Christ comes to clear up what is understandably cloudy in the Bible. Christ comes to clear up what is cloudy. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3 says, God, after God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways in these last days, some 2,000 years ago, which is still today, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also made the world. 
And he is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. Who is God? If you want to know what God is like, you look to Christ. That's what Hebrews is saying. Did did y'all hear that? So I'm not... I'm not making this stuff up. But these are passages that I'll, I'll be the first to admit, they jump off the page now to me. And I'm like, how did I not see this all along? If that's you, that you're very normal. Like, how did I not see John 5, 39? <laughs> how did I not get it before? Well, there was a veil, particularly one of ego that was covering my heart. When you surrender to your powerlessness, <laughs> And surrender to God, you experience the life that Christ came to give. 1 Corinthians three sixteen through 18, Paul says, But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, listen, there is freedom. Freedom. And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So here's how I want to end. Remember I said, unfortunately, these religious leaders, and sometimes we as religious people, we settle for a consolation prize. We're looking for praise and respect from people when we actually have it from God. It is ours in Christ Jesus. Praise, glory from the one and only God. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 5. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time, but wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the motives of human hearts. And then praise will come to each person. From God. So much better than looking for the praise of men. We have the praise of God. And some of us need to stop judging ourselves. Um, we are our, our worst critic. Give it to God. Let God be the judge. And here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus said, I didn't, I didn't come to judge the world. I didn't come to judge you. I came so that you might be saved. So that you might be healed. So that you might be rescued. So Jesus, what is good as it relates to this passage Well, here's what is so good about this understanding of of our oneness with God. That is who you are, friends. You are one with God. You have divine DNA. Jesus comes to get us to realize this again. Um, Really, our first parents, Adam and Eve, this this was the big lie. This was the the first advertising campaign in the world. You know, any advertising campaign is, has to first convince you that you need something, you know, that you're incomplete without something. Well, the serpent was the first, uh, I'll get into trouble here, but capitalistic marketer who shows up and says, uh, you, you need something. You, 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 you know what? You, you need to be like God. And let me show you the way to be like God. You got to eat of this apple or whatever. It wasn't an apple, but eat of this fruit. That's the first lie. The lie is that they weren't already like God. You see? They, were, they already had that. So the truth is they lacked nothing. And Christ has shown up again. Here's the good news to say, friends, <laughs> you lack nothing. That was all a lie. You lack nothing. 
Everything else is an illusion. Anything that says otherwise is an illusion. It's good news. Let's pray. Jesus, help us to embrace this because we, and I know I certainly um, live as if I lack everything, it seems, at times. I live as if I'm not complete, that I need something else. And I've bought into that age-old, ancient lie. Thank you, Jesus, that you show up to prove that we are worthy, not by demanding uh, the flesh and blood of human beings, but by giving us your flesh and your blood. God gives God's self to the world to eat and to drink. Wow. Help us now as we come to the table of Holy Communion where we embody this truth. In Jesus' name, amen.